Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we are discussing the hit Katy Perry song, Wide Awake. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan, and man, this is one of my favorite songs ever. This is one of our favorite songs, listeners. This is exactly why we decided to review Katy Perry's song, Wide Awake. No, I am just kidding. We are not reviewing Wide Awake by Katy Perry. Why would we do that on a movie review podcast? We are discussing M. Night Shyamalan's second film, technically his first theatrical film, you probably could say. why It's, it's Wide Awake. It's called Wide Awake. Yeah, this is uh, the real first, technically, movie from uh, M. Night Shyamalan, not The Sixth Sense. And kind of not really, but also kind of sort of his last movie, Praying with Anger, which was really only a, it was kind of like a yeah, festival film. It really didn't release in too many theaters aside from those festivals that it was at. But this is the one, this is the one that really actually got some publicity outside of just a select few theaters, if that. So many people think of The Sixth Sense as his first film. And yes, that was his first critically acclaimed film but technically that was his third theatrical film and the fourth film he had written because right after wide awake in the same year he had Stuart little came out i know that is always a shock if you pay attention to the opening credits if you're sitting in Stuart little you're expecting a fun family movie and if you were just watching this at the time Stuart little came out you would be thinking nothing of it because you had probably never heard of him in hindsight after The Sixth Sense and The Village and all of his other movies, you're just sitting there and you see written by M. Night Shyamalan. It's one of those jaw-dropping moments where you're thinking, wait, what? So it is written by him. It's not directed by him. So we're not considering it an M. Night Shyamalan film. Hence, we're not doing that here on the podcast. But I'm going to be watching it this week and I'm going to be doing just a short written review that'll go up on the website and of course, we'll be on my Letterboxd account. So if you follow me on there, you'll see it immediately after I watch it. And I'll share that to the different platforms that we have. And I'll kind of give my thoughts and see where his writing is at. Because we've seen him writ, we wrote, he wrote the first movie, Praying with Finger, and he's written Wide right, right Awake. So is Stuart Little any better with the writing from, from what I remember? Well, I guess we'll have to see. But this was distributed by a bigger company. It was distributed by Miramax. Yeah, and uh, are they still a thing? I thought that they like went under or got bought out or something. Yeah, because I don't. Pretty, you don't see Mir at all anywhere. No, Miramax used to be really big. It used to have a lot of movies uh, being pumped out, but it's not a thing anymore. At least under the Miramax title. Okay, I, I'm not sure whether it got bought or it just went out of business. It just kind of faded into the oblivion i guess but this film was released march 20th 1998 so there was i believe praying with anger came out around between 90 and 92 something like that so he had had at least probably six years i believe um, okay yeah so it's been a bit it's been a while uh since the movie came out but i did read that it had been in production since i believe 95 uh, and then it was eventually released in 98. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought I read that somewhere also that it had been 
actually finished a lot sooner than its release yeah. in 98. Who knows why? Probably, once again, trying to find a reasonable distributor. But even then, this movie, from what I saw on Box Office Mojo, I believe its widest release was 43 theaters. Oof. So still not great. It's a very limited run. It, right. And it completely wreaked havoc on its box office returns, as you can imagine, because yeah. this movie had a bigger budget than last his last movie. It had a budget of $6 million, but it only released domestically, and it grossed $282,000. Yikes. And I mean, I wonder if this was a film that Miramax had suspicious ideals with where they were like, I don't know if this is going to make that much money. So they kind of didn't really do much with it in terms of releasing it very in very many theaters. Companies would typically do that where as instead of losing more money and releasing it in a bunch of theaters, they'll release it in a few or push it to just straight to DVD or in this case straight to VHS. That way they don't lose nearly as much money as if they would if they went for a wide release because they do have to pay for some of those rentals. Right, and maybe they were hoping some of it would have a better life on home video after its theatrical release. I don't have those numbers. I don't know. I am really shocked Miramax took a bet on this movie and put it out in a limited number of theaters because it wasn't worth it. They lost a ton of money, it seems like, if they were the ones, you know, giving in to all this money. And they very well might not have been. He might have got financing from other places opening weekend it grossed ninety five thousand dollars which Eef. is just awful and it's yeah. i'm pretty sure opening weekend it wasn't even in its full 43 i think it was in 20 something theaters which is like nothing in the country yeah yeah that 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 number seems about right then to have on about ninety eight three thousand dollars come out of 20 theaters that sounds about right for a movie like this also, for some reason, they decided to release it around some of the biggest box office movies of the year. Titanic, mm. despite being in its 14th week, was number one at the box office. Oh, I'm sure that it was. That one, at the at the time that it was released, and up until Avatar, it was the number one grossing movie of all time. So, yeah, I, am, I do not doubt that it was number one for probably almost this entire theatrical run. Right. Also, movies like Primary Colors, U.S. Marshals, Goodwill Hunting, The Big Lebowski, L.A. Uh, Confidential, yeah. The Twilight Movie, The Apostle, Dark City, and Steven Spielberg's Oscar-nominated Amistad, which was in its 15th week, they all beat out this movie. This movie was in so, such a low uh, count that it, we don't even know what place it came in at the box office but clearly it came below all of those movies that had been in theaters for months yeah and those are pretty popular movies even the twilight zone movie is still a rather popular movie even though it's been a few years since that show aired but yeah doesn't really surprise me especially when it's only releasing in a handful of theaters uh whereas with a bunch of these other movies they're probably in almost every theater that you can get your hands on and obviously, this should come as no surprise, but this is Shyamalan's lowest grossing film ever. And it's kind of ironic because his next film, The Sixth Sense, would be his highest grossing movie to date. Yeah, so it's definitely the uh, the Sixth Sense that put him 
on the map for real when in, in terms of being a director uh, that can make a pretty big impact. But once again, we're not there just yet. We have this one to go through, and then it's the sixth sense. And as far as user ratings and scoring goes, IMDb has it at a solid six. Not great. That's really not great. That is pretty much, that's incredibly mediocre to borderline bad, mostly bad. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as for the Rotten Tomato score, it might surprise all of you. It has a score of 40%, which is very bad, but it has an audience score of 67%, which is pretty good. But according to critics, this is his ninth best film. It's ranked higher than Glass, according to critics. Oof. Interesting. That was really surprising. Yeah, I have heard not so great things about Glass. I haven't seen it yet. At least at the time of we were recording this, I haven't seen Glass. So, I'm interested now more than ever I was with Glass. Because I was originally not even planning on seeing Glass until we decided to do this retrospective. Now I'm interested. Yes, I haven't seen Glass yet either. I was definitely planning on seeing it because I saw Unbreakable and Split. I wanted to see the third film in this uh, unlikely trilogy. I am not going to tip my hand whether I think what I think about this movie just yet, but I'm just giving you what the audience and critics thought of this because audiences clearly like this movie with the 67%. And now that works a little bit different. You can't translate that into IMDb ratings and Rotten Tomatoes ratings because judging by audiences on IMDb, they don't really like it, but on Rotten Tomatoes, that means they like it well enough. Doesn't mean it's just this great, amazing movie. I was just shocked to see critics like it better than glass that just seems very surprising to me considering glass is supposed to be kind of his glass and split and others are kind of his comeback he's been making more of a comeback but for those of you who don't know what this movie is about i'll give you the plot here in just a minute but it is about a young boy in fifth grade in catholic school kind of dealing with the big questions about life dealing with death of a family member his place with god in this world and just kind of coming of age childhood etc so where in the world is the Shyamalan connection in this movie well he came to the states at a young age and he attended waldron mercy academy which is the real school in this movie they shot it okay location interesting all right and if you will remember back to kind of the themes of the first movie I believe this is the other side of his views of God and his life. The first film dealt with the Eastern Hindu aspect. This deals with the Western aspect from his childhood. So he seems to be, he went back home, quote home, in the first movie, and this seems to be going back to childhood. So we can tell these first two films he made are deeply personal to him, if not so almost autobiographical with placing a young Catholic boy in the same school that he attended at around his age. And so it's interesting to see that. Yeah, it is interesting to have his first two films kind of be complete opposites of each other because the previous movie was very much a uh, a heavy, a heavier drama. At least that was how it was meant 
to be. And this one is very much, is very lighthearted. It's not as heavy as the last one, but it's still in some ways very personal to him from what I'm seeing here. Because the last one was him dealing with, uh, I'm not sure I'm the director, it was him dealing with uh, where he came from and how his views and how he grew up is much a bit, di a bit different than what the views and the people that he and his people that he came that his dad came from that he still kind of lives in his household are how they're different and this one how he comes to terms with that and this one is very much how he questions this god in term i guess in, i'm guessing when he uh starts following this new religion i'm guessing and when he, maybe when he was a kid and so yeah they're very much opposites of each other because not only are the two ideals different but also he takes the tone of these two movies and makes them also almost opposite of each other because like i said that one's a bit more is a bit darker in terms of how, what how it portrays certain things and this next one is also a bit more lighthearted, but there are still some pretty big similarities between the two of them and as far as i could tell m night Shyamalan does not appear in this movie physically at all he does cameo. He was the main star of his last movie. Yeah. And I am pretty sure he cameos in every movie. I'm pretty sure since that's kind of a thing where they're like, oh, my Shyamalan's in it. But in this yeah, one, I'm pretty sure it. he does some kind of cameo in every single movie aside from, I guess, this one. Because, yeah, I didn't see him either. Yeah. I looked for him. And I looked it up and other people said he's not in this also. Okay. It may have not been his thing yet. Once he got into Unbreakable, or no, uh, Sixth Sense, then it kind of became the thing that he yeah. did. Which is, we'll talk about it, but very much an Alfred Hitchcock signature he's trying to probably take from, it seems like. Yeah, and I mean, that's nothing new. I directed to this all the time. Alfred Hitchcock is probably the one who popularized it, though. Sure. Listeners, if you have not seen Wide Awake and you would like to check it out, this one is a lot easier to get your hands on than Praying with Anger. So go ahead and pause it, rent the movie, or you can actually buy this one and watch it. Come back and click play, and we will be ready to talk about all the spoilers for M. Night Shyamalan's second film, Wide Awake. Joshua A. Beal, played by Joseph Cross, is starting September by entering the fifth grade and dealing with the recent death of his grandfather, played by Robert Loggia whom he was quite close with. He's not ready to move on from childhood, and he still sleeps with his teddy bears, and he's not had any closure from his grandfather's death. Regardless, he still has to wake up and get ready for school. He attends Waldron Mercy Catholic Academy with his best friend Dave, played by Timothy Reifsnyder. One day, he asks Dave if he believes in God, to which Dave replies no. Josh remembers his grandpa believed in two things. Always keep your hands on the ball, and always keep your faith. In order to feel closer to his grandpa, and to literally hold on to his faith, he joins the football team, but is quickly kicked out for fighting with Freddy, played by Michael Pacienza, the schoolboy. Determined to understand why his grandfather had faith in God, even in the face of death, Joshua goes on a mission to find God. One night at the dinner table, he listens to his older sister Nina, played by Julia Stiles in one of her first roles, tell their parents that Cardinal Geary, played by Gil Robbins, is coming to speak at their school. Oh, and people believe he can talk with God. The next day at school, Joshua has Dave orchestrate a distraction in order for him to sneak out and ask the Cardinal to see if God is real and his grandpa is okay. Before he leaves through the emergency exit, 
The New Kid in School, played by Michael Craig Bigwood, apparently everyone is named Michael in this movie, warns Joshua to turn off the alarm first. After sneaking into the girl's school, he's aided by Hope, played by Heather Kassler. The first girl Josh has ever noticed is attractive. From getting caught by the school authorities. That was a disjointed sentence, but you'll catch on. (laughs) (laughs) But after the Cardinal's lecture, Josh finds him in the bathroom, where he's nearly incapacitated by a sickness, which reminds Josh of his grandpa, and leaves him disillusioned and confirmed God doesn't talk with the Cardinal. December comes and Josh is no closer to finding God. He tries singing louder to God so he'll hear him. He plans a trip to Rome for his family to meet the Pope, which he believes is God's best friend, and he even tries practicing Islam and Judaism in the hope of finding God. As his faith wanes, so does the allure of childhood. If faith in God seems silly, then enjoying toys and playing make-believe sounds really silly. He's worried that growing up isn't what it's all cracked up to be. Back at school, Dave tells Josh he heard on CNN it's going to snow that night. Josh, I didn't know CNN did the weather, but I I guess they do. Maybe they did back in the day. Back in the day for every city in the country. Okay. Josh doubts that it'll snow, but Dave's foretelling comes to fruition. Unfortunately, the snow doesn't stick, and neither does Josh's belief in God. After a few days later, at a friend's birthday party, he meets his friend Hope once again, who asks if he's found what he's looking for, and when he tells her he hasn't, she assures him that he will. While getting ready for bed, Josh remembers during the months preceding his grandpa's death, his grandpa told him snow was proof of God. Despite Josh's scientific response, his grandfather explains he believes God will take care of him after he's gone. After his reminiscing, Josh runs to the window to find a winter wonderland. Jumping ahead to May, the school year is coming to a close and so is the mission. With all hope nearly lost, Josh believes he better figure out the mystery of God soon. Dave has been missing more and more from school in the preceding months, which causes Josh to worry about him. After school, Josh goes to Dave's house and finds Dave passed out from an epileptic seizure. Being the last straw, Dave accepts his grandpa was simply a fool who believed in a made-up god. But, later at the hospital, Dave tells Josh not to give up on his mission. God is real. Dave the skeptic is now the believer because he realizes Josh finding him was nothing short of a miracle. On the last day of school, Josh notices not everyone is accounted for for the class picture, as he sees the new kid walking through the hallway. As he reaches the new kid, he tells Josh this nebulous he has been watching him from heaven and that he's happy now. When Josh questions, you mean grandpa? He turns around to see the young boy has disappeared. This little boy has been Josh's guardian angel all along. To which Josh concludes, I believe two things. Not all angels have wings, and sixth grade has got to be a lot easier than this. Josh's faith has been restored. As credits roll. Okay. So, I'm going to go ahead and say that the IMDb plot summary lied when it said that one of the nuns is one of the nuns that's there, and that'd be kind of his teacher in this movie. She is the one who follows him along and is kind of like her, and she aids him apparently in the story. I don't think that's true at all because she is only, she only really shows up to do that kind of a thing in like two scenes. In this entire movie, the rest of it is essentially just 
uh, our main character doing it on his own and figuring things out by himself. There's really only one or two scenes when uh, I think her name is uh, Sister Sophia actually does help in this journey. And that's about it. Yet the IMDb's is like, oh yeah, this nun also is the one who kind of helps him out and aids him through this journey. I don't believe that. That's not true. Yeah, let's talk about the marketing here for just a minute. And also the cast, because although I did mention the cast of this movie, I didn't get to mention the full cast because they factor into the plot in such a minute way that I really couldn't work them in in an organic right. way. So this film does have a pretty well-known cast, probably most specifically his grandfather played by Robert Loggia. Also, his dad is played by Dennis mm -hmm. Leary. And then Alan just mentioned the nun who's played by Rosie O'Donnell, who, if you'll notice all the posters for this movie, it's Josh standing on a stack of books and Rosie O'Donnell with a baseball glove and a giant baseball, red Converse sneakers and a baseball hat. Right. And yeah, she is kind of this athletic, sports-oriented nun that doesn't factor into this movie whatsoever. We don't get any God and sports analogies nope. at all. Completely wasted. And on the front cover, it's them together. So you think, okay, these are the stars. And even on the front cover, it says Rosie O'Donnell is hilarious. Mm -hmm. So billing her as one of the big people and yeah, Dennis Leary has top billing, Rosie O'Donnell, Robert Loggia, and uh, the tagline on this package anyway says she had all the answers until now. Which only plays into so like one scene. <laughs> right. And even in that one scene, which we will talk about. We really don't get much out of it. There's just really not a whole lot of stuff. So, yeah, it is kind of disappointing. This film is completely mismarketed. I'm pretty sure they did that in order to just get people in the theaters like, oh, Rosie O'Donnell's in it. She's really funny. She was a lot better known back then. She's really not on anybody's radar screens right mm -hmm. now. And a lot of these other actors. So it's a kind of a bit of a bait and switch where they're trying to market a movie in a certain way. And then, you no. Know, it's not that kind of movie at all. Right. I'm I'm guessing they did this definitely for a fine and in terms of trying to get some more money out of it because putting M Night Shyamalan's name on it is not going to go anywhere yet because he hasn't been he hasn't really made a name for himself uh, as of the time this movie released. Uh, Rosie O'Donnell is probably the biggest name here, and so and don't get me wrong, she is in a lot of this movie, but once again, she doesn't exactly do too much aside from a couple of scenes. And so, yeah, it's it's very much one of those things where they try to take uh, one of the most well-known actors or some one most well-known something in a movie and put it out there as if it's the, one of the main things in this movie, which she kind of is, I guess, if you want to stretch it. But in reality, it's she only plays in a few scenes that really don't go anywhere for the most part. So, yeah, this is very much a, uh, a money kind of market. It's a bit more for money. Hopefully, they can get more people to watch it if they have Rosie O'Donnell's name on it than if they would just have, like, say, the main character or the only, the only person there or maybe the main character in his family or something like that. It would it makes a bit more sense, but at the same time, you're right. That's not this movie. It's a very different movie than what it's being marketed as. Now, as for the opening of the movie, it was giving me a sense of M. Night Shyamalan wants us to think this is going to be along the lines of, at least in the childhood aspect, of To Kill a Mockingbird. 
because this kind of opened with a lot of childhood drawings, crayons, and I remember To Kill a Mockingbird was opening with trinkets and with Scout-like humming right. or something. It also, I'm pretty sure Curly Sue opens that way also, but don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure. Regardless, M. Night Shyamalan is trying to draw on some more well-known movies to give you some thoughts of, oh yes, this is very childhood-like. I gotta say, these nearly, like, nearly silent drawings and some weird spinning motions over the voiceover dialogue between Josh and Grandpa does not work. It's weird. Yeah, it is kind of weird. And one of my other things that I was thinking of along that list of Curly Sue and Dicko Mockingbird was also a Christmas story, because that's also one that's very child-centered, where the child is the main narrator in the story mm. and the main actor. That's true. That's kind of what I was getting off of this is just as well as also to kill a mockingbird. But yeah, it is strange. We get it's set up pretty quickly that this main character, Josh, has a pretty strong relationship with his grandpa. And we do find out not too long after this that the grandpa has recently or I guess he's died, and then we find out a bit later that it's been, I guess, rather recent that he's died. But they don't really explain that very well until it's much later into the movie. But yeah, it, it, we get set up right right, right. right right away that this kid's um, role model is his grandpa and that he loves football and that's – at the moment, that's about it. He is dreaming about the time that he was with his grandpa and he had this one conversation about football. Yes, this film is literally broken down into a three-act yes. structure, <laughs> September, December, and May with title cards for each of them and I believe much later and quite late into the movie – we learned that Josh, his grandpa died while he was away at summer camp, so he kind of never really got that closure, never got to see him before he died. So summer camp, who knows when that ended and when he died, sometime over the summer, but September is not long after that. So his grandpa is recently deceased, his items are still in the house, and Josh is... I don't know. I don't think he's necessarily depressed. He's just sad. He doesn't want to wake up for fifth grade. And I will say I thought it was funny when the mom throws his covers off and he's got all the teddy mm -hmm. bears and he's sleeping with a tooth toothbrush in his mouth. Now, how this will factor into the movie later on is awfully cheesy. Yeah. And factor into the title even. Uh, yeah and i mean okay this is the weirdest thing that i thought because there was a line later on that confused me a little bit uh he didn't go to the funeral because he's at summer camp but i right i would just kind of assume that the parents already know that he's pretty close with his grandpa so they would probably in my mind would have pulled him out of summer camp so he can go to the funeral and i mean that's, I guess it's also a pretty long summer camp because usually funerals aren't held until maybe about a week after the person dies, typically, or a week or two. So if summer camp lasts like a whole month, then I guess I can kind of buy. But at the same time, those usually don't last more than a week or two. So it just seems weird that he didn't get to go to the funeral at all. That just seems like kind of... The parents here don't act like great parents to be honest with you they make decisions that just seem strange like they, he don't, they don't take him out of summer camp so he can go to the funeral later on they take the things out of grandpa's room for without telling our main character and then after that maybe it's before that but it doesn't matter they take him out and they like the parents mom and dad are like giving him giving him toys and things like that trying to get to know or I guess spend more time with him out of really nowhere It the parents here are very strange all the way around yeah, the parents are shallow characters, 
to say the least. What could have been and most likely should have been stronger characters to support a young child with the passing of a grandfather who lived with them at home. And then just to the dad is kind of funny and the mom is just like, hey, we need to move on. I, I put his rocking chair mm-hmm. in your room. So that'll that'll help. And that's pretty much the only kind of I can't even really say character building scene between the two of them for the most part. And then we just get that, like you said, voiceover narration where my parents started spending time with me because they, you know, they wondered, wondered what was going on with me. Well, that's the only reason they started spending time yeah. with you. Well, that's a little yeah, sad. That is, yeah, okay. that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about is the parents here are very much almost non-characters. They're just very much in the background. They don't yep. really do too much unless the script asks for them to do, to do something. They aren't really worked in very well to the script at all. Well, and I'll say that's one of the more aggravating parts of this movie is how many non-characters oh, yeah. there are that still are sprinkled throughout the movie. It's like M. Night Shyamalan forgot how to write characters, and I'm kind of jumping a bit of ahead of myself, but it's – okay, I'm going to go ahead and say I think the first 20 minutes are compelling. They're funny. It's I'm interested. We get some uh, pretty well-written dialogue. And I'll talk about that here in just a minute. But then the film just begins to forget how to be a film and how to make characters and give us satisfying arcs. And of course, there's a major lack of. Oh yeah, and I would say that it's not necessarily just the characters that have a bit of an issue. There's just a lot of random ones. I'd say it goes for almost every single aspect of this movie, especially when it comes to like just the events that happen in the script, because there are scenes that just straight up don't belong in here. My First example I can give right now yes. is the passing the tray scene in the cafeteria. That happens for no reason, goes absolutely nowhere, and never comes back ever again. It's one of those things that there are just random oh, yeah. things put into this movie <laughs> for no reason at all and have absolutely no payoff to them or any reason to be here. I think you're right in saying that the first 20 minutes are somewhat compelling and then the next hour is totally not. It kind of reminds me a lot of the last movie where we both kind of thought that the the first 20 minutes or so was pretty interesting how they were bringing up these certain themes uh, and que- about these people questioning, or about the main character questioning this uh, society they lives in. But then after so long, they create so many subplots, they had to now play catch up to get them all resolved. This week kind of doesn't do that thing with the subplots, but does a, has a really bad job at getting everything that it introduces to work back into the script in a compelling way, or even at all sometimes. In reality, it's just a really poorly written script, just kind of in general. And I'm disappointed about that because, like I said, the opening, I am invested because we see this young boy go and sit in his grandpa's rocking chair. He imitates smoking his pipe. I thought that was very cute. And there is a really nice edit where the boy reaches over to put the pipe away and it cuts right to his grandpa's arm doing that, showing him in bed and... Uh, talking about that I like the setup there and it's funny because they're dropping the kid off at school for the first day and his dad is like try to agree with the nuns and I went to a, a Catholic college which is a little bit different but I did work closely with the nuns they're wonderful people and the dad's telling the daughter wave to your brother and I think probably the funniest scene in the whole movie is when the kids start asking about hell and they're saying, wait, my neighbors are Indian. They're going to hell. And he's like, my baseball coach isn't, doesn't go to church. You mean he's going to hell? <laughs> I thought that was yeah, all funny. Yeah, and see, this is the one of those scenes where the teacher, this is when we were first introduced to Sister Sophia. She doesn't really have an answer for all this. Mm-hmm. And they never 
come back with an answer. It's just one of those scenes where it just goes on. I mean, don't get me wrong. It is kind of funny, but it just goes on for such a long time that you assume that there's going to be some kind of payoff with it. And then there absolutely isn't. And we shortly start to get multiple subplots introduced that don't lead anywhere. Or if they do... I guess I'm really bad at following storylines. I wouldn't. But, I wouldn't uh, so we, blame you at all for this script at all because it's it's so all over the place and especially in certain points. It really is. So we're introduced to Brickman, who is considered a weirdo. I thought he might be the school bully at first. The way he's kind of ominously walking down the steps at him, and they want to avoid him. No, he just is. He's either he either is just legitimately weird, or he has some kind of issues. Starts acting like a chimp and attacking a family. Okay. And then we learn Dave doesn't believe in God. And this, this scene is bookended with the introduction of Freddie Waltman, who is the school school bully, who's really not that bad of a yeah. bully, honestly. And these two people will continue throughout the movie, and we're supposed to learn lessons from them. Waltman just fizzles out, and Brickman just leaves me baffled as to what we're supposed to get from the kidnapping of the Pope scene yeah, later on. Once again, there are things like I can get Freddy. I think I understand why they brought him into the equation to a certain extent, I suppose, but it's another one of those things where it's because when he, at the very end of the movie, he does have to leave the school because his parents can't pay for him to be there any longer. So it is an, it varies, kind of an interesting scene to see our main character kind of go up to him and, kind of say goodbye to him. Really the only one who I guess that we see is say goodbye to him. But once again, there really is no setup for this payoff. It's just kind of payoff, but there's no reason for it to be here. In reality, Freddy probably should have been written out completely and have that whole section just kind of not even exist because it doesn't really do anything for the script, along with a few other things. But that's just, in terms of Freddy, there's not much there really at all. What made of what would have made those sequences stronger is if they would have properly utilized the grandfather flashbacks as to him learning lessons from his grandfather that he didn't really understand in the moment, but now he is taking those lessons from his deceased grandfather into his current right. life and into the future. Those would have made those a bit stronger, and then of course, uh, giving a little more uh, weight to these two characters as well, and giving them some kind of depth. Because they really don't have anything to them aside from one is a misunderstood bully, and I, I still don't understand Brickman's <laughs> yeah, character. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. And that. at first, I was because about I think it's like the second or third interaction that this movie has with them. I was just like, are they actually making fun of like someone that's might even be disabled? They in the end they kind of resolve that, but I was yeah. just like, that's not good. They do resolve that. But yeah, Brickman, they never really give a clear answer as to what's going on with him. If he's just weird, if he's just known to act weird, because I have a brother who kind of acts like that. Now he's not like disabled anyway. He just sometimes goes off and does crazy things. But I was just thinking, are they actually doing this? But still, he has no reason to be here aside from just kind of being comic relief. And I guess kind of a lesson at the end of the story. Although I couldn't pick up what I was trying to say with that. Aside from just, I, I don't even know. Well, we're also introduced at recess to the new kid, which he believes will be picked on more than him because he's smaller than him. And of course, the new kid pops up at convenient times to, uh, he only really helps him out right. once with the alarm. Right. 
the other time they're trying to cheat on a test and he comes up down the hallway and they just wave him on and then he just meanders off and doesn't do anything for him. We also are introduced to Frank Bennett who sweats a lot. He's the he's his big friend who wants to play ninjas. Later on, they'll get stuck in a thing for an hour and a half, which seemed really unbelievable to me. And he just learns to be nice to him. Yeah. Okay. That's the thing. The only time Frank is only brought up twice, and that's here in the recess scene, and then later in the museum, and that's it. He doesn't really do do anything else aside from those one those two scenes, and even then, it's not even that big of a deal, especially when they get caught in the uh, in the rotating arm. Which, by the way, is could very easily they could very easily get out of that if they just kind of shimmied to the to the left a little bit. But whatever, I guess. It it was just a needlessly contrived yeah. conflict that ultimately didn't teach me anything. I don't. Ugh. Anyways, so but I okay. I'm still in positive territory here. I'm still into the movie. I'm intrigued. Joshua now wants to play football because of his grandpa, and I think there is some really well-written dialogue between the parents and between the siblings. I found it a funny scene where uh, Josh just pops up in bed in the middle of them, and then the mom turns the light off, turns it back on, and all of a sudden, Lena, or or it's Nina, actually, uh, she pops up in bed also, and it's really funny. So I'm having high hopes for this movie so far. And I'll tell you where my hope dropped off. And that is right after the communion scene where he's in church with his grandpa. His grandpa goes up to get communion and he realizes this is where Josh kind of realized the mortality of humanity because he says, oh, I didn't realize so-and-so was sick uh, because I think a small child realizes sickness is more so outward and not so much inward. And then he sees that his grandpa goes up for communion and healing also or something and his hands are shaking. And I'm like, oh, this is a good scene. And I, and I did like the like the line where he said his grandpa believed in two things, keep your hands on the ball and always keep your faith. Well, the boy translates that literally and kind of connects faith in you know, football as they go hand in hand. And if he participates in one, then he'll have the other. So I'm enjoying all of that. And I like that a lot. But then after that communion scene, and I realize we're going to get this really constant monologuing throughout the rest of the film is when I start to get really. Yeah. And I was, uh, the film was losing me from almost the very beginning. And I'd say the Mm. scene that completely lost me would have been the scene when we are first introduced to Brickman because I had this feeling that he is only going to be in this movie for this specific reason, where it's just meant for comic relief and nothing else. And that was when I, that's when I put it on my notes, this movie is aimless. Because there are a lot of scenes that just don't really have much of a through line. They just kind of go from one scene to the next with nothing connecting them at all. And that happens so often that this movie, I, like I said earlier, I wouldn't, uh, I don't blame you for being confused on some of these subplots because... There's nothing really connecting a lot of things in this movie. So from then on, I was just like, okay, this movie's beginning to lose me just in heaps and bounds. And then as it be, as it went on, the more it began, the more it started to lose me, especially when it came to the football scene. It just started with the football scene. He got into a fight, and then we never touched football ever again in this movie. Uh, I get that it was because of the grandpa that he was in football, so he so the kid wanted to go for out for football. But aside from this one scene, that's the only thing you ever get about it. 
Yeah, it gives us this like nebulous conclusion that he was forced to quit, maybe because he was quote fighting. Yeah, I don't know. It just kind of falls flat. And yeah, this movie is kind of, I guess. And this is the problem when you're trying to write a movie about a kid. You can't make it as if a kid is writing it. You have to be a little smarter than that and structure it like an adult. Right. But still provide that childlike mentality in certain scenes. But don't act like the movie is a childlike mentality where it's bouncing from place to place, which is where I think this movie really falters. But I will say the communion scene is probably the last meaning, like meaningful scene of this movie. Yeah. Aside from where they're talking – him and his grandpa are talking about the snow. I thought that was at least a sweet moment between the two of them where he's crying into his grandpa and he knows that he's going to lose him soon. But other than that, this movie, yeah, just becomes – and this movie really doesn't know what it wants to be. To me, I found this to be split between Dennis the Menace and some heartwarming comedy but then also asking all these big questions. It really doesn't know where it wants to go and I and then I get really worried. When Josh gives us the main goal of the film is to look for God and talk with him. Okay, I... Okay. And that's kind of the biggest problem with this movie is it's just incredibly surface level. We never probe too deep into any issue that we bring up. And the big question of, can I talk to God? Is God real? Uh, is a huge question. And they, literally aside from just saying the question, they don't probe any deeper than that with any aspect in this movie. And that's one of the things I didn't like about it is that I kind of walked out. And to be fair, I guess I'm not really necessarily the target audience for this, but I kind of walked out. I'm just like, well, what did we learn at the end of the day? Nothing much because it didn't probe any deeper than the question that it asked. And I'm also just a little baffled by how on the nose... M. Night Shyamalan gets with his writing and characters here because the boy goes to see the Cardinal after a really cheesy James Bond scene. Yes. <laughs> okay. So he goes to see the Cardinal. And okay, I can understand why he would want to go see the Cardinal. But along the way, Josh, of course, falters in his belief, but he is literally supported by hope. By a little girl named Hope. Very subtle. <laughs> I mean, I just can't believe that he named a character Hope. And gosh, okay. So, yeah, yeah I'm with that, you. Th this whole first act is called September, by the way, if I haven't mentioned it. It's called The Signs, where I guess he sees signs that god is is not real but all along there was all these different signs by the little angel boy and hope and maybe dave doing something i don't know brickman whatever we get that there's a lot of different signs but the first act concludes that he doesn't think god talks to the cardinal because the cardinal's sick i guess i don't know yeah there he doesn't really give too much of a reason why he doesn't think that the Cardinal is uh, talking to God or God's talking to the Cardinal. He just says, I don't think God talks to the Cardinal. And then moves on to the next act of uh, December. It's like, okay. 
Oh, I'm sorry, I messed up. September is called the questions, December is called the signs, but it doesn't really matter, honestly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're right, it doesn't really matter. The only thing that I got out of uh, December, the signs, was a possible hint of Shyamalan's movie, the signs? Maybe, maybe. I'd say that's a bit of a stretch, but maybe. I think they're all connected, the Shyamalan verse. (laughs) Every movie he's made, every single one is connected in some way. I'm sure that there's a, uh, I haven't looked it up, but I'm sure that there is a conspiracy theory about that, that every single one of his movies are connected (laughs) in some way. Kind of like the Pixar theory. There is a funny line here at the beginning of December. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. when they talk about the snow and how CNN said that there's going to snow. And it says, CNN don't lie. I just thought that was really funny. Just kind of given the the more uh, modern circumstances with Trump and him calling CNN fake news, I just found that to be just be funny uh, just because of recent events with that. I did find that very funny as well, where he's like, if it's on CNN, it must be true. Yep. And yes, CNN, CNN is definitely uh, the, the one that's always looked at as fake news. And they have legitimately been caught lying before. And they've had to like release some sorry statements. So that is funny. Now, probably back then they were a bit more relied upon than they are today. They have bad ratings today. But yeah. I did think that was so funny. Yeah. Um, just given and, okay. the current circumstance, it just makes that line hilarious, which has nothing to do with the movie at all. It does. Because nope. it didn't know that at the time, clearly. And I did find it funny where they're going to confession and they're saying we have to just we make stuff up at confession and <laughs> yeah. um, they they question why do we have to why do the nuns have to be in the locker room while we change clothes and the boys waiting for the nun to walk away to, to change his clothes and um and yeah so those those are funny scenes but i will say we're 30 minutes in and I, at this point i'm still going with the movie i'm still okay with it but I'm realizing this movie is really missing a heart. It's striving for deeper themes, but this is the exact word that I had in my notes, and this is what Alan just said. It's shallow yeah. so far. And I think that kind of comes down to Shyamalan not knowing how to get to the end of his message here. I think he has the right idea in terms of what he wants to say, but doesn't know how to work that into a story and make it flow really well. Because like I said earlier, there are scenes that just kind of are placed in here. Uh, there are scenes that just don't connect at all. And it almost, it's almost as if they are just placed in here seemingly at random. Now, don't get me wrong, they are somewhat important scenes that if you took them out, then you might be missing a chunk or two. But the problem is getting from one scene to the next scene, and there's n- hardly any through line between the two of them, oftentimes when you change from one scene to the next. I'm guessing... The problem with this movie and kind of the same thing with the last one is M. Night Shyamalan knows how to knows what he wants to say, but doesn't know how to accurately portray that in a story or even through editing in a very well-rounded way as he would later on in his next movie. And I believe this movie doesn't become deeper than it is is because Shyamalan himself just doesn't doesn't know how to do that or doesn't yeah. even know really where to go with it because when – Josh was asking his grandpa about proof for God or something, and the grandpa just points to – I was kind of excited to see what Robert Loggia would say, but he just points to the snow, and he doesn't really follow that up with, well, you know, God creates the weather and X, Y, and Z. 
he just says, yeah, it's the snow. And it's just kind of one of those things where it felt very much like the Santa Claus 2, the escape clause, where he says, you know, I don't remember the exact line, but he says, seeing isn't believing, believing is seeing. That just felt like it was ripped straight out of there. That and, That's eh. almost like the line of uh, today's today and tomorrow's tomorrow. Oh, yeah. I remember hearing that. I was like, well, I guess you can't argue with that logic. Oh, Deep, deep philosophy yes. embedded within this. Absolutely. I, what was the point? Where was he even trying to go with just saying that? I know that it comes up at one time later when Frank asks him towards the end. He's like, is today tomorrow? And he goes, oh, I think it is or something like that. It's That's the only, the only time it ever comes up. And the rest of the movie that I'm aware of, or really anything that means anything, which it still doesn't mean anything, but whatever. Alan, have you seen the movie The Dead Poets Society? No, I haven't. It's on my watch list on Netflix. I need to get around to it. It's quite good, and it is much deeper than this movie. It came out in 1989. Um,. So almost 10 years before this movie, there are a number of times where I could see Shyamalan, especially towards the end, he's really trying to go for this dead poet society feel with just kind of invigorating our emotions and connections with just characters in life. I, oh, he doesn't get there. He doesn't quite get there. Mm -hmm. Just, just falls a little short, you might say. I guess I'll have to check it out now that I've seen this movie. (laughs) <laughs> yeah but and i'm also getting a little perturbed because i feel like he is what came across as witty comedy to begin with is now just coming across as really shoehorned comedy where yeah. da- uh, josh has to repeatedly say holy s word and then he runs by the jesus statue and has to say sorry for it and that's right before the awful scene of freddie yelling who did this to me then it's just like he's trying too hard and it's just yeah he's losing me and i'm just like when he's running past this the uh the statue i'm just like be careful you can't say too many of those before you get a pg-13 because i think that with a pg i think it's like uh i think you can say like five or six times or something like that and then it gets like Mm -hmm. an automatic pg-13 kind of like how the pg-13 if you say the f word more than one time usually you get a r rating just because of that I was just like, be careful. You can't see too many of those. Yeah. I, once again, to me, it's just like, why is this here? Yeah. There there are plenty of those in this movie. And I do guess I will say I appreciate that there are some elements that, yes, a little boy would think, let's go to Rome because the Pope, well, especially a little Catholic boy, I should say, would think the Pope is God's best friend and they can talk or... The, the priest says, maybe if we really sing together, God will hear us. And then he winks at Josh. And I thought that was really just melodramatic. And Josh, is a, it's a horrible shot of Josh fake singing. Yeah, you, and you can uh, tell it's fake. It's, it's very clearly that it's fake. In fact, I, I feel like they almost overdubbed the uh, – the, the, I think that they put both tracks of audio where they have the kids singing and from the actual scene – that they recorded and the yes. dubbed audio from the singing at the same time, and you can just oof. It's a it's a bad edit. It's a terrible edit. And it's not to say I don't think Josh and Josh's singing voice is very very strange all the way around. <laughs> uh, now, did you notice during the scene where he's talking with Rosie O'Donnell 
about he's now a Muslim, but then he's quit, but now he's a Jew. Yeah. Did you notice the camera jittering in that scene also? I didn't, but I I guess I missed that part. I may have been taking notes. Yeah, the camera's just start shaking up and down. Interesting. It's not dramatic, but it's... It's nevertheless there. They, they couldn't hold the camera steady. Someone must have bumped it. Okay, this is the only scene <laughs> in my mind that I think actually makes a little bit of sense and actually has some kind of direction and doesn't feel so aimless like everything else because we actually get some dialogue from Sister Sophia that feels like she's being the aide with Josh in the story. This is really the only time this ever happens. Maybe one other time. But yeah, we get this weird we're told that he's become a muslim at one point and then fasted during thanksgiving which the movie <laughs> totally skipped over by the way so i'm just like that are we funny did they film these scenes and then did they, they edit them out or did they just not film them at all they come out of nowhere and they really only come up in this one scene that he apparently became a muslim or tried to and then was fasting during thanksgiving it's don't get me wrong, there is a bit more direction here where it feels like this is a very self-contained scene, but there is still a lot of stuff in this one scene at the very beginning, especially where they bring up things that just trip never happened. I'll give you that, that it's interesting, but it's very much suffering from what we saw in David Gordon Green's Halloween, where the film is just not taking its time Oh yeah, to yeah. Um, just kind of sit with us in these scenes, explore these scenes. Instead, everything has to be told to us. Everything is so scripted and, you know, pushed in our face in that way. So that is really disappointing that we can't just go along with these scenes. And what's also bothering me is the emotions of Josh and those around him don't relate in an organic way. Rather, it's just Josh narrating them to us. Yeah. And instead of placing us in the family... We're getting the highlights, which I struggle to connect with. Yeah, it's it's very much a Spark Notes version of the how the fan was doing in this whole mm-hmm. situation. Uh, yeah, there is in reality, if they had been cut out completely, there still wouldn't have been much that was different about this movie, aside from the very Deus Ex Machina of the Cardinal being in the Cardinal being there at the school, which even then is not really that not much of a Deus Ex Machina because he's only in that one scene and it goes nowhere. Also, what's troubling is trying to talk about deep theological questions, but from a childlike perspective, because a child very rarely can arrive at something really deep and theological. Now, that's not always the case because children can sometimes seem to understand things better than adults they just kind of take away the clutter and see it more simplistically but this film doesn't do that Shyamalan doesn't write that he just he seems like he doesn't even know what he's talking about or he can theologically understand from an adult's perspective or a child's perspective and I'm also bothered by the whole magic of toys scene it just comes out of nowhere it's so forced and just shoehorned in there I understand the connection if God's not real, then childhood make-believe is silly as well. But I, it's just like, wait, what? How did we just get here all of a sudden? Yeah. Once again, there's nothing that leads into this scene of the parents uh, trying to connect with their kid and figure out what's going on with Josh. There's no lead into this happening. And then he goes off on this rant about, 
well, this is all I see here is just plastic and paint. It's all kind of worthless to me now. <laughs> it's just like, what? <laughs> Where did they, like I understand why it's here, but why is it here? You know. And I I did mention earlier the narration. I don't think it's poorly narrated, and I think Joseph Cross does a good job in his role. I just think what really causes the movie to suffer is how just flat it it makes everything feel. It instead of it just never gives us a moment to actually live in the movie. It's like we are these third person spectators that get to listen to Josh's, you know, ESPN play by play from the radio. Right. Right. It's yeah, it's very much a like I think you mentioned this earlier, very much a highlight reel of his journey to finding out to finding God. It's nothing really ever sticks. It's nothing ever really there isn't really anything that allows the audience to really dive into these characters or get to know them or has anything that would cause any kind of emotion aside from oh interesting. Maybe. It's it's one of those movies where like I said earlier, it the only the deepest it goes is the question that it asks of who is like does God exist with no answer. Something that I did find to be, I guess, well done, but still in a very minute way, is when they are at the birthday party and Josh talks with Hope, kind of those early young feelings of becoming interested in the opposite sex and trying to talk with them. I at least thought that was well done, and that reminded me of that age and being nervous to talk to girls and you don't really know what to say and stuff. So I thought that was captured just fine. Unfortunately, it is once again Hope telling Josh he's going to be able to find his mission and we're distracted by um, Dave jumping in a pool. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I would say that they do a pretty good job. One, my, I, I do like the line, and it did kind of get a laugh out of me when he says, I'm having a biological reaction. Yeah. That, uh, that did kind of get a chuckle out of me because mm-hmm. it's a, it, this kid is kind of known to be, I guess, uh, a bit more scientific with how he looks at things. Like this also comes back in the play when he talks to Grandpa about the snow. But yeah. Then also, there are a lot of kids at this birthday party. Like, a lot of kids and somehow hope is there i don't is there was there ever an explanation as to why she was there because i didn't think i got anything no my only guess is i guess we didn't mention this but i didn't know catholic school was at least this catholic school is uh segregated between the sexes so boys at one school girls at the other school uh, my girlfriend went to Catholic school growing up for a number of years, and I don't believe that was the case, so I don't think this is true to all of them. My only guess is they probably go to the same uh, parish, and their moms know each other or something, and so she Maybe. was invited. Yeah, but that was never explained, so no. we have really no idea why she's there, aside right. from the obvious answer of, well, hope is there to help him with this journey. Which, once again, very subtle. Yes, hope literally comes to give him hope. Oh, gosh. And the, the act has to conclude on an incredibly cheesy scene of Josh associating snow with God and faith. And this is called the signs, so Josh does get a sign that, I don't know. It's just, it snows. That's how the scene ends with snow. And it's supposed to be magical, but it's not. 
Yeah, there's little connection aside from uh, a scene, I suppose, a small scene where his grandpa tells him that it's the snow. That's how I know that God is real. Aside from that, that there has no other connection. If you want to see a much more powerful scene that has to do with the elements and God, then go and watch V for Vendetta after Natalie Portman is not trying to give anything away here. But after she's done being tortured, she talks about rain and God. And then she stands outside and says, God is in the rain. Now, God is not in the rain. Okay. God is, that's not, that's like monism. That's not true. Nevertheless, yeah. it's a much more powerful scene and more connective. A much better movie too, by the way. <laughs> much better movie. Oh gosh. Also, whenever there is kind of like rain or snow and we are trying to connect it with God, kind of reminds me also in Blade Runner 2049, where he's standing out in the rain with his uh, hologram girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Much better scene. And they didn't oh, even yeah. talk in that scene pretty much. Oh yeah. There's so much more emotion brought forth than just one scene in Blade Runner than his entire movie. <laughs> I know. Oh, oh dear. Anyways, moving on to Act 3, May the Answers. We skip ahead quite a bit. <sighs> okay, so, gosh, I really want to understand this. Josh believes Brickman wasn't acting crazy by taking the Pope hostage. He was telling Josh something about his mission. Which is what? Huh. Which is no what? No idea. I don't even remember that part, to be honest with you. I thought I wrote down my notes. Oh, no, okay. He stole a picture of the Pope. That's right. He stole a picture yeah. of the Pope. I remember now. So he just decided to get out of a chair during somebody's oral report, take a picture of the Pope, which apparently is naughty. He runs outside, climbs on the jungle gym, and he holds it up like, look at the Pope, look, hold it up. And I'm just so frustrated because now I'm like intrigued. I'm like, okay, you're starting the third act with something really weird. Yeah. Where's the payoff? Where is this? You can't just cut off an arc and but they do he does it's yeah this is uh, also sister sophia does absolutely nothing aside from tell the other kids hey go get another sister to go get brickman <laughs> off the jungle gym it's it's yeah this scene makes absolutely no sense and if you cut it out it would not change anything at all aside from oh wait aside from at the very end so sister sophia apparently wrote a book about the kid in the jungle gym yeah can't forget that 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 utterly pointless monologue that wraps everything up <laughs> in such a Oof. way that nobody nobody cares and yeah anyways i didn't i i did realize i have seen brickman before in something else he's played by michael shulman who okay. played in three years earlier he played the character Artie in the tv series party of five he was claudia's boyfriend so if anybody is a party of five fan like me then you will realize Brickman is played by Michael Shulman. That's probably 0.002% of everybody out there making this connection that I just made. So there's a little bit of trivia just in case. <laughs> yes, because we need, a bit, we need a bit more than just ranting here. Yeah, we. I'm trying to give you a bit more insight, a bit more depth into the deep connections of this movie. Uh, more than Shyamalan is doing anyway. But... <laughs> So, okay, where are we at now? Gosh. Oh, yeah, next is Freddy. He does leave after this. Yeah, I was so lost. So, at first they just show his back. So, I thought it was Brickman. And I thought, okay, so, we're continuing. So did Brickman. I. Yeah. I mean, I would think that you would logically assume that it is Brickman because <laughs> of the scene before it. 
a, a great example as to how scenes just don't add up in this movie. Right. A equals D in this yes. movie. Yes. I mean, logically, it makes sense. Right. Logically, you would just jump to a head. Uh, okay. So what you're telling me is that Freddy is – I thought he was getting expelled – but his parents are saying that he they can't pay for it. Mm-hmm. To me, this is once again Shyamalan trying to just crib off of himself from the previous movie where the bully is expelled and they both come to a mutual respect of each other. And I just saw so many um, elements, like connective elements from this movie and last movie that it felt more like almost a bit of a, a copy in those ways, although they're very different and... Uh, I don't know. I don't know why we even care about Freddy getting expelled. I don't either. Uh, this scene comes out of nowhere with no context and no background knowledge as to Freddy actually being somebody, uh, Freddy possibly being a kid who has to leave the school. There's nothing here that brings this scene into fruition in an, in, in an organic way in any way. I, yeah, there is a connection that you can make with this previous movie where he does this somewhat of the similar thing with the bully, but that's a completely different movie. It is not praying with anger. This one is not praying with anger. So yeah, this scene comes out of nowhere, only serves to teach some kind of lesson, I guess, of be nice to everybody aside from how they treat you, maybe? It just, it makes no sense as to why it's here, and it makes no sense as to the whole grand scheme of the movie here. Also, rarely are there any consequences to these kids' Uh, actions. They're very ornery and some would say naughty with what they do. And we get this here with, um, what's his name? Dave. Dave wants to cheat because he can't focus, okay? But they're on a secret mission. It's kind of funny, but it's really pointless to the plot. And they don't get caught, which bothers me that Everything just comes across so easy in fifth grade. And if anybody has lived through fifth grade, it's not easy. Yeah. So if you want to see a movie about um, eighth grade, Alan and I saw, and shows you that it's not easy, then then go see that. I would highly recommend it. I like it a lot. But Anyways. yeah, you're absolutely right. There is no consequences in this movie, like hardly at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, that This kind of reminds me of a, of a more recent movie called Wonder. And it's oh. more about a kid who has more of a abnormally looking face and he gets made fun of for it. But this kid, the main character, he kind of gets away with a lot of things. And that's also the same thing here where there's literally, there's really no consequences to what happens, whatever the kid does. This is the kind of the whole state of the whole movie, though, here is it's not just our main character. It's also his friend. And a couple other characters like Brickman, we don't ever see really anything come of the bad things that they do here. They just seem like they just happen to move the plot along and then drop it completely. And there's nothing done about it after that, after the scene ends. They even at one point, they even say uh, at the very end of the school year, they the uh, I guess is the head principal of the school. I, I don't really know her name, but she comes on and says, if you were the one who stole the mop bucket and did the thing with that other thing, please come forward. And they're talking about the escape plan that Josh and Dave made up. Uh, yeah. And she says, the janitor would really appreciate it. And that's the only amount of consequence that we get here. Yep. That he would appreciate it. And he's the one sliding around on the bucket. Also. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of hard to say it's even a consequence because nothing, once again, it's just play for laughs. Nothing comes of it. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely a very easy movie in regards to that, which if there would have been more conflict uh, with that, with those situations, and even it's so frustrating because they don't give us any definitive answers as to why Brickman acts the way he does, and he never gets in trouble. That's yeah. why I thought, oh, he was going to be expelled, and we were going to get some deeper context to the situation, but instead they just go with Freddy, and Josh shows that he's the bigger man and shakes his hand, Ugh. and they, there's an awful close-up shot of their hands shaking for, like, ever. Yeah, it's 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 that cliche misunderstood bully trope, but... It plays really hardly any, there's no reason for it to be here. Of course, the movie is coming to a close, so they're going to have to wrap it up soon as to proving God exists. I can't imagine this movie ending on this nihilistic note. Yeah, not this movie. I doubt that would happen. I couldn't imagine it. Yeah. So in order for us to get Josh believing we have to give Dave epileptic seizures and call it a miracle that Josh found him. More like a coincidence, a script coincidence, if you ask me. Yeah. Can can you spell contrived? I mean... Oof. It's can, like written all over the scene. I'm pretty sure it's hard to miss. And they're going to, of course, say, oh, no, we set it up. Remember, we said Dave couldn't focus on his test. Things were blurry. You didn't believe him, did you? Well, now you should because he's a sad, epileptic character. Mm -hmm. This should have been more pronounced throughout the rest of the movie if we were going to go down this route. Right. I will say this. It does have more setup than the Freddy situation because they do say that Dave just randomly does miss school. They don't give any reason for it until now. It's one of those things where they don't bring it up until way too late or don't have hardly any lead in this has more lead in than most things in this movie but that does not give it a pass because it does still come out of absolutely nowhere because dave decides one no josh sorry josh decides one day that he needs to go visit dave for one reason or another and just happens to come across him right well once again this was also a cliche of the time i feel especially of young dramas where the friend is missing from school due to some sad reason. The kids yeah. either getting abused and they don't want to come to school to so they don't see their black eye. I guess my mind is going to kindergarten cop right now. Um, but also there are other movies. I've just seen this done before where oh, yeah. my friend has been missing and I don't know why. And then you realize there's a darker side to life that it's not all roses and that some kids have it tough that's completely Mm -hmm. fine to put that in movies i'm just saying i've seen this before and it's also overly melodramatic when we come to this scene where it's incredibly ominous honestly i'm thinking dave has been super depressed maybe and he like tries to kill himself and just the way they portray it with the music and this ominous tone of like dave like nobody's home and uh, I didn't know what was going on anyway. And then yeah. Josh runs out screaming in slow motion. Maybe they're trying to show up from a child's perspective how overly dramatic it would be and it would be scary. But to me, it just it doesn't work. Yeah, they in that Shyamalan hasn't learned how to be effective in telling and creating, I guess, an emotion for this kind of a scene. Yeah, it's the, it comes out of nowhere, it has no lead into it, and the only reason, it's only purpose it serves is much later on, it's the thing that causes Josh to go back and start searching again. Uh, aside from that, it, 
doesn't really do much. But once again, it does. I, I suppose it does have a bit more lead in than most anything else in this movie with his with Jaw or the Dave missing school a lot. But that does not excuse it <laughs> from being a very very contrived scene. And making another connection is when we get this flashback to when Josh falls down, he learns to pick himself up and runs to his grandpa. Better done in Batman Begins with mm-hmm. Bruce Wayne and his dad. Why do we fall, Bruce? To learn to pick ourselves up. Ah, we didn't get any resonance here. And yep. it's really ruined by the music. They thought the music would really add that oomph to it. And I know some movies can do that well. This one can't. Yeah. yeah the music here is... Uh... Uh, incredibly 90s for the time. Right. And once again, we're trying to draw back to Bible and God and biblical parallels. I couldn't help but think of the verse, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Josh literally finishes the race. I have kept the faith. It couldn't have been more obvious. Yeah. Subtlety is not uh, this movie's strong point Mm. at all. Okay, Alan, I got to know your thoughts on Dave's, uh, or not Dave, on Josh's uh, just Oscar-nominated, Oscar-winning speech here at the end, his wide-awake speech. Yes. The only thing <laughs> I, have, I have done in my notes, let me see if I can find it, here it is. Uh, the only thing I have really down for this scene is, uh-oh, he's going off script. Because he, <laughs> at one point, he's reading it and just puts his paper down and just starts just talking. Uh, oof. I'm wide awake now. I was asleep before, but now I woke up. Oh. I mean, I guess the movie has been leading up to this point of just sheer cheesiness. But mm-hmm. that doesn't, once again, does not excuse it from being bad. Right. They're trying to continue off of the Paul motif. He, he ran the race. He kept the faith. And Paul said, when I was a child, I, I acted like a child. Now that I'm a man, I've put away childish things. And his mom says in the beginning... Time to wake up. You're almost a man. My my mom never and dad never told me in fifth grade I was almost a man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, how old are Same. you? Like 10 years old? Uh, yeah, that's know. about right. Nine or 10, yeah. So I think probably Josh is, a, I think he's a decent child actor, Joseph Cross, but his facial expressions really bother me throughout this movie because he's always concerned he's always troubled about something yep. his brow furrows this whole scene is so oscar baity that it's not even funny and it it's so annoying i i know i, I just the sheer uh oh gosh just the sheer uh literal literalness that's not a word gosh i know what you mean unsubtleness you know I mean. yeah yeah the lack of subtlety it it struck me as like I couldn't even believe it. So at first I like rejected. At first I rejected <laughs> it. I, I'm like, no, this this is not what they're saying. This is not it. And then I just couldn't believe that's the title of the movie. I had forgot about the title of the movie. Come to find out, he means it in yeah, like I'm wide awake, like I understand more about the world now. But gosh, the fact that they had to tie it into on the first day of school. His dad has to brush his teeth because he's asleep while doing it, which is completely unbelievable. And then yep. on the last day of school, he's Mr. Sharp-Dressed Man in the bathroom, wide awake. Awful. Just way to ruin the movie there at the end. I, to me, this was no surprise. Because when this <laughs> scene came up, I was just like, this fits with everything else we've been 
building up to this point, which isn't much, but it is there. It isn't no. It was no surprise to me that this ended the way that it did. But it makes it even worse, and and arguably even funnier when they start like wrapping up the story and showing the janitor and how there he's looking for the kid who was the one who stole the mop pail, or the how the PE teacher kicked one of the sisters with a with a soccer ball, and they're hoping for a uh, a good return from her and a healthy and a healthy uh, a healthy stay at the hospital. They're just right. wrapping up Recovery. things that had no build up at all before them until now. In fact, I would I would even argue we get more of these characters now than we did when they were actually in their scenes it's it just comes out of nowhere and it just like now let's wrap everything up it's it's meant to be really funny but it 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 has no purpose here it's just there for i guess to be just to be funny but even then it's not that funny in at all really also this film has cornered itself into being purely uh monologue driven in order to Uh, explain character arcs and scenes so there's there's um, other movies and TV shows that have done this better. This morsel would have worked better in a TV show where we would have had time to develop these different characters. Otherwise, these characters mean nothing to us. Never even seen them before. So yeah. why this, do I This care? is very much this is very much a TV movie TV movie quality kind of film. I would even say that it's a 45-minute short film stretched out to be an hour and a half feature length movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I did also see this very much as we need ro- more Rosie O'Donnell. Also, we need to pad the runtime. Let's give her a very filler monologue. Also, yeah. we've only been with this kid for three months of the school year and honestly, not even that. So uh, I don't know. This was just completely pointless. Um, the two other examples that I can give you that do this better are, in my in my opinion, the end of Napoleon Dynamite. It gives you, it wraps up the character arcs in a satisfactory way, and it doesn't need any monologue. It's all done through just uh, music and editing. And then also in the very end of Freaks and Geeks, which is a phenomenal TV show, much better than this, about coming of age and being in junior high school and high school. That wraps up in a satisfactory way as well. We don't need Rosie O'Donnell to narrate to us. Yeah. Once again, this is kind of a surprise. Everything else is building up to this point in the movie is all kind of been leading up to this so it's no surprise but it's still no excuse honestly i'll even say that the diary of a wimpy kid movie does a better job of providing character arcs and a look at middle school and how that all ends in the perspective of that so i'd rather right. be watching that than this. <laughs> i mean that is saying quite a bit though but at the same time this is wide awake we're talking about this is pre-sixth sense m night Shyamalan. And I am just shocked, listeners, in a, in a year's time, apparently, M. Night Shyamalan is going to have an epiphany. He's going to figure out how to make a six-time Oscar-nominated film. <laughs> I, you know, I'm sure he's been working on the script longer than this, but this these came out within a year of each other. That's right. At least in terms of theatrical release, because we right. mentioned earlier this was finished in 95, but didn't get released until 98. But you're right. <sighs> There, within a fast. year, within a year, something happened within a year. Uh, something happened. He figured yeah. it out. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, Alan, we've got to talk about this final scene here that it just I just flipped out. I put in my notes, if <laughs> you tell me this little boy, this new kid is an angel, I'm going to flip. And he is. He is an angel. Can't you tell? The one scene that he actually did something in? 
And I, I, I wonder how much of this movie is missing uh, and just left in the editing room floor oh, because gosh. I feel like we're missing a ton. But at the same time, I also think that we're not because we're missing scenes where he tried Muslim, he tried being a Muslim, and then he also fasted the Thanksgiving. That was in the that was in the the scene between Sister Sophia and our main character Josh. But <laughs> there's also this scene. Uh, things just kind of come and go as they please, almost. And there, I feel like we're just missing big chunks of this movie that explain a lot of things and maybe would help the pacing a little bit better. And maybe we're not. I have I, I we have no idea, no way of knowing that. But that's just the way it feels. It feels like we're missing huge scenes. That are kind of important here. That just for whatever reason didn't make it into didn't make it into the final cut. And this is one of those where this kid is also an angel that did absolutely nothing aside from that one time when he told him, "Don't go out that door. It's, a, it's an emergency exit. It'll sound the alarm." And this almost isn't even a movie because we don't have organic plotting sequences and character arcs and developments. Because, like you like we said, the family is. Um, fairly pivotal they're fairly important at least they're showcased well in the first act and then they're just gone after that and i would have loved i liked the scene where he's talking about going to rome and he printed up a sheet from the computer for them i thought that was a a pretty decent scene around the dinner table but then it would have been great to have that around thanksgiving but this movie just because of how much monologuing we have it just doesn't even feel like a movie yeah yeah it's uh that once again even makes you wonder if the monologuing was done after the fact, maybe. I once again have no way of knowing that. Uh, it's, it feels more like a Blade Runner uh, U.S. theatrical release than it does anything else, where they did something after the fact to make it easier on the audience. I suppose. I don't know. This is this movie is so is so incredibly shallow that uh, y- there's really not much you can get out of it. Aside from, I guess, how not to make a movie, maybe? I don't know. It's it's something that is, it's, to me, it's just, it almost feels like a waste of time because of how much that could be there, but totally is not there. Did you clock watch it all? I think I did towards the later half a little bit. Um, I guess I was just more having a little bit of fun by seeing what scenes, uh, having a bet with myself, will this next scene not connect to the scene previous? <laughs> yeah, Alan's better about not clock watching than me. If I really am frustrated and don't like it, I will just clock watch constantly. I will mm-hmm. turn on the, the timer clock on the screen. I will count it down. Oh, See, I've learned that if I do that, the movie is longer for me. Yeah. So, I just, so I, I try to do it too much. That's true. That's definitely true. Well, I guess we can say this is M. Night Shyamalan's first twist. He is known for putting twists in the end of his movies. This is a twist, you could say, with the boy actually being his guardian angel. And Uh once again, everything is super shallow. It's all based upon happiness. And so the grandpa was able to send an angel to make sure his grandson was happy and had faith. And honestly, we don't even get that. We don't even get any proofs. The boy is like, I just believe in two things. Not all angels have wings. And sixth grade's got to be a lot easier than this. Wink, wink. I, I would, I'd be hard-pressed to even call it a twist. I don't think it's much of that at all. Because at least with his later movies, there's a good reason for the twists to be there. 
and it does play a part in the movie. Now, whether mm-hmm. or not they do a good job at doing that is up for debate when we get to those points. But it feels like this is just something... I will give you this. It does kind of start the twist thing that In Not Shaman is just known for having uh, ever since The Sixth Sense and really on there. This may be kind of like a precursor to all of that. But I would it'd be hard for me to call it a twist because it doesn't have any input in the story whether or not it this was in there or had been taken out completely doesn't really do too much to change the story completely aside from i guess prove that god is real maybe but it doesn't also doesn't exactly say that outright which i would assume that this movie being that how it has been the last hour and 20 minutes it would might it might do something like that but it it doesn't yeah it's not a good twist at all but i guess as far as m night Shyamalan goes we can say that he you know i guess subverted our expectations and pulled the rug out from us on the end haha ha, he got us anyways mm, yeah as <laughs> oh man didn't see it coming at all but from my <laughs> way anyways i was going to mention i did forget to mention that alan brought up blade runner but yes rarely do movies that are monologue throughout the entire movie rarely do they work as satisfying narratives because it's a lot of uh, <clears throat> you're supposed to show, not tell in a movie, but with this, it's telling and not showing. They're telling us how we're supposed to feel. They're telling us what exactly is going on. Right. And that Blade Runner theatrical cut, I don't recommend you watch it. Watch the final <laughs> cut. It's awful with its monologue. Yeah. Also, um, my girlfriend and I recently were watching Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron. Are you familiar oh, with yeah. such a movie? It's been a while since I've seen that. Yeah, we were watching it because we were trying to realize what DreamWorks animated films we hadn't seen. She hadn't seen this one. And I thought it was Chad Michael Murray monologuing that whole movie. No, come to find out it's Matt Damon. Really? Interesting. It's not good. I remember that movie being so much better when I was a kid. It's not good. It's bad. So monologues don't work. So uh, narrators, film creators, let this be a lesson to you. Don't monologue your movie. It shows that you don't know how to create genuine emotions within characters. You have to have them just explain it to us. I would say that there is a good way of doing it. Most films just don't do it very well. Maybe a film like Fight Club does have some monologues in it, but at the same time, that's also playing really well into the story and isn't something that's used to be a cheesy tactic. But more often than not, when you have a narration, it's there to hope, at least its, its goal is to provide context, but it also doesn't do a very good job at showing. It just tells and most of the time. There are good ways of doing it, but most of the time, like you were just saying, it's not very well implemented at all. Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Wide Awake? Uh, not good. <laughs> it's not a... This is a very poor movie uh, than what I was expecting it was going to be because I had a little bit of hope from the last one that he would have learned uh, a few things and would have had a more competent movie. And in some ways, it is better than the previous movie. But in a lot of ways, it's so random and is has a really hard... This is, feels like it was edited by somebody who has ADHD and it didn't get past to the final edit and the director before it moved on and was given to the theaters. Because like I mentioned so many times, there are there, there are scenes here that just don't connect with the one that came before it. There are plots, there are plot threads here that don't connect to anything. And then there are random scenes that just don't straight up don't belong at all. And then there are scenes that are completely missing from this movie that feel like they should be in there. 
is not really well acted. The uh, they put whatever the sister of Sophia's uh, actor on all the posters because they know that that would get, bring her in some money, uh, bring in the movie some money. But she does very little to fill the movie. And in reality, this, like I said, this movie is more shallow, is shallower than the question that it asks, which it doesn't even try to answer hardly at all. And when it does, it's very unsatisfying. That's kind of the word I can probably put to say this the word that best explains this movie is just straight up unsatisfying. So no, I'm not going to recommend this one. And I'm I'm going to give it a, a, a 2 out of 10, uh, not recommend from me. Uh, very, uh, very poor movie from M. Not Shyamalan. Luckily, he does get much better from here on out. So of this and Praying Anger, what, just rank these two. This first oh, time. that's so hard. Because they both have good and bad things that make them almost even for me. I guess, okay, I guess I'll put praying, praying for Anger higher because I can. I feel like I can actually watch the movie again. This one, I don't want to watch again. M. Night Shyamalan's second writing and directorial outing, but first mass theatrical creation, is a jumbled bag of cheesiness and poor theology. What started strong as an interesting premise of a young boy who lost his grandfather, who he was very close with, quickly shatters into a hodgepodge of a wannabe, heartwarming, lighthearted family film wrapped in a deeper theological subtext of faith and the meanderings of a fifth grader. I found Act 1 to be funny, well-edited, and intriguing. Alas, towards the end of Act 1, the film completely loses focus. Character development is halted, emotionality is forced, the quest for God is cheapened through glossed-over moments of existentialism, and certain story points such as the bully and his crush Hope are wrapped up out of left field. I'm severely disappointed in this film. It's an utter waste of time. Skip this Shyamalan nightmare. Four stars out of ten with a strong not recommend. Part of me was wondering if it was going to be like a, an Angels in the Outfield kind of movie. Oh, yeah. And then when we got into the football, it was just like, maybe we are going to spend time with football. And then they totally drop everything. And they don't ever go anything past the, that scene. And then the teacher, or Miss so- Sister Sophia being on like, trying to teach a lesson through you by using football terms. Now, it has nothing to do. It is nothing like Angels in the Outfield, as far as I remember. It's been a while since I've seen that movie, too. So it it did I really have don't care. right. It did have potential to be a sports movie connected with yep. angels and God, and have been funny. But this movie isn't sure whether it wants to be funny, serious, both. So I will say it did have potential in the beginning. And if they could have kept up what they started in the beginning, I think and just gone deeper with it, then I would have enjoyed it. Because like I said, I enjoyed the first act, but then this movie wasn't sure whether it wanted to be one of those fun family 90s movies like Dennis the Menace, which I do enjoy for for what it is. But then it also tries to be, you know, uh, what did I say? Ordinary people or something just really heavy, you know, dealing with death right. and stuff. It just, Shyamalan, so confused. But I am excited to review The Sixth Sense. But listeners, you will have to wait a few weeks. Yes, just a little bit because we have two Mad Max movies to get through and Pet Cemetery. after those two. That's right, listeners. We will be coming back to you next week with the first installment in our Mad Max retrospective series. And after that, we will be coming back to you with The Road Warrior and then Pet Cemetery, the original 80s version. I think that's when it came out. So... At the time of this recording, I will be done. No, at the time of this recording, I'm almost done. 
But by the time you're listening to this, I will be done with reading the book. And I got to say, I love the book. So I highly recommend you going and checking out the book. It might be kind of hard to get your hands on as the theatrical movie approaches more people will be wanting to read it. So we'll be doing those three reviews, taking a bit of a Shyamalan break, which I think we need after these two, because these two were yes. bad. And Yes, we do need a break. Thank you. <laughs> I will agree with Alan that Praying With Anger, I gave it a five. I gave it a five out of 10. This is a four out of 10. So Praying With Anger is just a teensy bit higher. But honestly, I'll never rewatch these movies if I don't have to. Yeah, I will only go back to Praying With Anger just to for the fun of it. Uh, just to see kind of like, it's kind of like the same thing with, uh, guy and Madeline on a park bench. I don't think either of them are already all that great, but you could, for me, I could just tell that there was some great passion put into them. So I could go return to for that, sure. but aside from everything else, they're not great. Well, listeners, you don't want to miss out on our, uh, Mad Max review series coming up very soon. And then you don't want to miss out when we do come back to review The Sixth Sense. So go ahead and click subscribe right now. Go ahead and share this with your friends and family. We love talking about movies and we love talking about them with you. So we do want to hear your thoughts. Did you see Wide Awake? What did you think of it? Is this one you feel like you must see to complete your Shyamalan watching or are you just going to skip it and you think The Sixth Sense is really his more so definitive first movie? Also, go ahead and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We would really appreciate that. That helps us in the rankings get noticed by other people who are looking to have fun just relaxing with a movie review podcast and that they can engage with as well. Uh, we do recommend following us on social media so you do not miss out. That's a great way to not miss out. So those links are in the description below. If you're old school and you like email like me, go ahead and go to our website and you'll get a pop-up. And if for some reason you don't get a pop-up, just look at the top of the screen and there'll be a subscribe button. Click on that and you'll get your email inputted. So every week you will get uh, everything that we've put out so you'll never miss a beat so make sure to go and subscribe through those as well we appreciate you guys listening and sticking with us with this wide awake review i am curious to see what you think listeners so go ahead and watch the movie and give us your thoughts as well thanks for joining me alan not a problem i'm excited for next week i'm excited mad for next max. week too alan has seen mad max i saw the first like 15 minutes before church one day who knows what i was doing uh, <laughs> i don't know but clearly i didn't get to finish it so i'm intrigued to come back and revisit it and to see um i'm gonna hold my thoughts i have seen only one of them i've seen mad max fury road um but i'm gonna hold my thoughts on that one whether i like it or not until yes, we get this to would it. be i've seen the first one this one that's one we're gonna watch and the latest one fury road so I haven't seen Road Warrior or uh, was, uh, whatever the third one's called, uh, uh, Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah, Beyond Thunderdome. Haven't seen those two yet. Yeah, so I've only seen the first and the last, at least at the time of this recording. So I'm curious to see what happens. It's been a while since I've seen Mad Max, the original. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. I'm ready, to go. I'm ready to go. To it. Well, listeners, we will see you next week with Mad Max.
quickly shatters into a hodgepodge of a wannabe heartwarming. Hold on. The computer always wants to restart when I'm in the middle of this. Yeah. <laughs> Darn it. Come on. Okay, we need to wait a minute for it to think. <laughs> Gotta love Windows updates. Classic. Always during a podcast, listeners. Every time. Podcast. They always come up at the worst time possible. Yes. Every the time. Worst time. And now it's just not, now it's stuck. Great. Oh, wait. No, it's thinking. It's working. Okay. Maybe. I don't know. I want it off the screen before I start talking. <laughs> I need to make sure the recording is still working and whatnot. That would be good. Yeah. Okay, uh, Alan, you could take like a bathroom break real quick if you want or something. <laughs> well, I would, but I don't got to go to the bathroom, so. Great. So I got, so we went and saw uh, How to Train Your Dragon 3 last night. Oh, yeah. Was it any good? It was pretty good. Best movie ever? No, not really. Well, I like it if I don't care for the first two. Oh, wait, Maybe. Coming. Maybe. Okay. Is his voice um, more pal- more like palatable? Because I couldn't stand his voice in the first two movies. Uh, a little bit. Okay. It's been a while since I've seen those two, so I, it's kind of hard for me to tell. A little bit. I think that was like my biggest hindrance from enjoying those movies was his voice was so nasally and whiny. I just was, gosh, it was, it was awful. His voice was awful. Yeah. I can't tell you if it's better or worse because I can't remember those first two movies and how they were with his voice. All right. I'll have to give him a shot again because I just remember not caring for those movies, but maybe they're good. I don't know. I know people love them, so. I like them, but it hasn't been a while since I've seen them, so. I consider my opinions on them outdated. Okay. <laughs> I don't remember. I, I I remember not liking the first Hotel Transylvania. I couldn't finish it even though I thought it was Yeah, bad. I heard really good things about that. I remember watching the second one or it's parts of it. I didn't like it. I, was, I didn't like the first one. That's just I remember me. liking. I thought the second one was okay at best. Yeah, first one's not even. Anyways, okay, I can I can go now. All right, go for it. <clears throat> I'm just going to start from the beginning. 